Tonight's message is entitled, The Root of Jesse, the title of which is taken from two verses in chapter 11, which is a great prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Meanwhile, it's back to the theme of woe. That was the title of a message a few weeks ago, where God, through Isaiah, is confronting apostate Israel and say, woe to you for this, woe to for that. And woe is like, well, it's like cursed are you. You remember back in Deuteronomy, God said, half the tribes of Israel get on this mountain, and then there's a valley, and on the other side, another mountain, and one calls out the blessings if they obey, and the other one the curses if they don't. Curses are the woes. So we find a first woe here in verse 1. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. God sees this. God sees the cries of those that are being taken advantage of. So it's woe to these unjust civil rulers. God has ordained government, the police, presidents, kings, but they rule under God and they are held to a higher standard to do God's will, to enforce true righteousness and punish evildoers. We'll look that up in Romans chapter 13. But when they don't do it properly, things fall apart in society, sin grows, and there is extra judgment on these rulers, as it says here. Woe to those that decree unrighteous decrees. In other words, they make bad laws. I remember something that Thomas Jefferson said, the uh, third president of our country. He said, when, he says, I tremble for our country when I remember that God is just. Think how far we've fallen since then. I tremble to think about our presidents, congressmen, senators, judges, those in my lifetime. Think of the bad laws that they have passed legalizing homosexuality, drugs, other such things, terrible things. Often the guilty go unpunished and the innocent are punished. And these leaders could have done something about it, but they didn't for political purposes. Sometimes legal bribes through lobbyists that give heavily to their re-election campaign. That's legal bribery and Bible warns about that. My point is, they're going to face God. Nobody gets away with crime or sin, even this kind of sin. So in verse 2, it gives a short list of those that had been abused by those in power. It says the poor, the widows, the orphans. And... Those are singled out elsewhere in the Bible because these are helpless. The poor people, they can't afford a lawyer. They're taken advantage by the wealthy. Widows, who's going to support them? And it mentions orphans. In other words, their parents, or at least their father, has died in war, and they're, they're helpless. And here they're being taken advantage of. It ain't right. And then you think of slavery, or let's bring this up to date. Does the word cartel come to your mind? Drug cartels, gangs, 
those that are bringing in people for, let's just say, immoral slavery purposes through the southern border. They're not all just coming for freedom and for uh, a better way of life. And for that, you can't fully blame them. But a lot of these cartels are bringing them up and bring them into this country and bring them to certain cities for immoral purposes, bringing in drugs. God sees that. Then there are other kinds of people that take advantage of the poor and the needy and the desperate. Matthew 23, Jesus issued seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And in one of those, he says, woe to you, you rob widows. How? Promising them certain blessings, laying upon them extra tithes so that these Pharisees get rich off of that, especially the Sadducees who are the more liberals, they're the, they were the ones that ran the um, money changers. They had the consignment on selling doves and things uh, and, 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 and transferring money from shekels to Roman coins and vice versa, and they become wealthy. And there's a verse in one of the Gospels that said the Pharisees loved money, and they took advantage of people. That's why Jesus had righteous indignation and drove them out of the temple. John's gospel said he made a whip and drove them out. So the Pharisees were like that. And then there are people today that uh, you know about this. They pretend to be preachers and they promise health and wealth. If you phone in that number that's on your screen or you know, send in money and I guarantee you that if you plant the seed of faith, God's going to heal you. Be sure to send in your money, make it payable to such and such. A lot of them are out and out thieves that know that they are thieves. It's a, it's a sham, it's a scam. And God, knows, God sees that, you're going to punish them double. For, because they prey upon the desperate that are very sick, elderly that don't know much better. Or as it says here, the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And these shysters steal from them and they laugh and, and they'll say things like, if God didn't want them to be sheep, why did he give them wool to be sworn? They said, they're just, and they're greedy for this. I have righteous indignation against them. Jesus took a whip to them. They should be horse whipped. Look at what it says here. Woe to you, you take advantage. Verse two, they robbed the needy not just of money, but of justice. Justice is an important concept in the Bible. Then we find some more warnings, verses 3 and 4. What will you do? Oh, this, this is good. God says, what will you do in the day of punishment? In the desolation which will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your glory? Because God is threatening them. God issues warnings before judgment. Most people don't heed it. There's a warning of hellfire. People don't heed it. They laugh at you. But I would remind you, God does not issue idle threats. Think of sinners today. This would apply too. Josh, use this in your evangelism. Ask them, what are you going to do in the day of punishment? How are you going to answer God at judgment day? They say, I don't believe in God. Oh, you know there's a God. What are you going to say to God when you see his angry face looking at you at judgment day? What are you going to do in the day of punishment and in the desolation? So you see, he's warning them about the judgment. God will let the Assyrians come into Israel, but 
The same principle applies elsewhere. There'll be no escape at Judgment Day, no hope, no excuses. And it says, without me, verse 4, they shall bow down amongst the prisoners and they shall fall among the sinners. Now I want to call your attention to that next phrase, verse 4. For all this his anger is not turned away. That was mentioned three times back in chapter 9. I didn't address it very much, so let me address that. God says, I'm going to punish you. The Assyrians are going to come in, murder a bunch of you, drag the rest of his slaves, torture you, because I'm letting them do this to punish you. But he says, but even then, God's anger is not turned away. Logan, this will preach. So let me preach about this. God sends some wrath on people on this planet in their lifetime. But even then, his wrath is not satisfied. As it says here, even when he punishes them, his anger is not turned away. But his hand is stretched out still. Why? Because God doesn't punish everybody in this life. Some he does. Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone came down. And God sends judgments through nature and war, which is displaying his wrath. It says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And sometimes it executes judgment and wrath here and now. But even then, God's wrath is not satisfied. That's only a teaspoon of the ocean of his wrath. For all this, his anger is not turned away against northern Israel and throughout history. Think of all the billions of sinners that have died and gone to meet God. But even then, God says, my wrath is still not satisfied. The word satisfied there is interesting in theological terms. God demands satisfaction because his holiness and his honor has been offended. You've heard stories of France 200 years ago when one guy insults another and then he, the insulted guy pulls out a glove and slaps a guy in the face and says, I demand satisfaction. You have dishonored me. And then they go out somewhere and have a duel, but the principle is good. You have dishonored me. You have insulted me. I, deserve, I demand satisfaction. You have dishonored me. They want justice. You know, we all have a sense of justice. It might be perverted, but we see things and say, that's not right. They shouldn't do that. They should be punished for that. But people often overlook that, especially like in politics. I remember I preached on this some years ago during that warfare when the old uh, Yugoslavia fell apart, you had Herzegovina and these other countries going right back to the old wars that had been suppressed under communism. Now communism is, is gone, and they went right back to civil war. And our State Department couldn't figure it out. They said, well, what, what is this? And so the State Department always thinks the answer to any problem is money. Foreign aid, give them more money, and that'll bring peace. And I remember preaching... If you were to go ask the people in Bosnia and Herzegovina and these other countries that are fighting, they'll say it's got nothing to do with money. Keep your money. And 
various people interviewed him and said, why are you fighting? They said, because 50 or 100 years ago, they came in and murdered everybody in our village. We want justice. We don't want your money. We want justice. It still needs satisfaction. That's what the Palestinians want. And I'm not going to say who owns the land, but that's what's going on in Palestine. The Palestinians say they're bombing us. If that's not going to bring peace, because eventually Hamas will be destroyed or surrendered, the Palestinians are going to remember this, and the feud continues. They say they murdered a lot more of us than we killed of them. We want justice. Now, it's somewhat perverted, but the principle is still the same. People say, we want justice. We want satisfaction where the guilty have been punished. You can't bring back the dead, but at least you can punish the guilty. Now, let's take that to the highest level. God demands satisfaction. His honor has been insulted. His holiness has been attacked, so he's angry. He demands satisfaction. How? He'll pour out wrath in this life, but for his, all this, his anger is not turned away. In other words, his anger has not yet been satisfied. Not in this life. Not in the next life. This will surprise you. Even those that go to hell will never finally satisfy the wrath of God. Because it's infinite. They may be there eons and eons of centuries. God's wrath is infinite. His honor is infinite. Finite beings, even for eternity, will never satisfy his wrath. It's like a thousand years from now, people are still burning in hell, crying out in pain, and God says, for all this, my anger is still not turned away. It's never The purpose of hell is not to satisfy God's wrath. It's to display his wrath, but it'll never, ever be satisfied. Never come to the point where God says, you've suffered enough. I'll either annihilate you or let you out and let you come to heaven. It'll never happen. That's not the purpose of hell. How then can God's honor be satisfied so he will say, my wrath is finally turned away? For the first thousand years of Christianity... The great preachers, the theologians discussed various ways. But the big breakthrough happened about the year 1050. Uh, a great theologian called Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, Anselm of Canterbury, not Anselm of Lyon. And he said, God's honor has been offended and God demands satisfaction. But we can't satisfy him because we're sinners. He said... God has infinite honor. Only an infinite being can satisfy that wrath. But by the nature of it, it has to be a human. But humans are sinful. Humans are finite. Only God who is infinite could satisfy it. But God is not a man. So he said God became a man to satisfy his honor and his wrath. And he put this in a little book called Cur Deus Homo which in English is why God became a man. Why? To satisfy his honor. And that is the only thing that actually satisfied God's honor. So he said, I am satisfied. The debt has been paid. My wrath has been turned away. When Jesus said, it is finished. What's finished? 
satisfaction. So it says here, for all this, his anger is not turned away. Not in Israel, not in hell, but at Calvary. His hand is stretched out still. When Jesus died and said, it is finished, God said, I will withhold my angry fist of judgment. I'm satisfied. Isn't that good? Why didn't some, yes, yeah, let's say amen. This, is, this thrills me. I've often preached on it at Christmas. Why did God become a man? To satisfy his honor and his wrath through the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that nobody else could do. Okay, let's move on now. Verses 5 and 5 to 11. More woes. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation, and so forth. Assyria was the most powerful nation on earth. The capital was Nineveh. They were cruel. They invented crucifixion, torturing people to death. And God said, I'm going to let them come in. They are the rod of my anger. Just like a parent uses a, maybe a little stick to spank the children. Assyria was God's stick to punish northern Israel. And he let them in. God used it, even though the Assyrians did it for the wrong reason. They were bloodthirsty. They wanted the land. They were cruel. But God used it. Have you ever heard the saying, God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line? God used the Assyrians for a good purpose. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Satan means everything for evil, but God even uses Satan to carry out his purposes. Just read the first few chapters of Job. And so God used them, and God uses things like that to chasten us. Someone that doesn't like us, robs from us, or something like that. God lets them do that to chasten us. See that there are rods in God's hand, like it says here. And God could use similar big rods against America, as he's done with others. Verses 8 to 11, here's... Assyria boasting. Are not my princes altogether like kings? And he mentions these cities. And aren't these just great? My hand has found the kingdom of the idols. And they're just boasting. I'm this, they're kind of boasting we're the strongest nation on earth and we've crushed all these others. They're boasting because they had been on a roll. Victory after victory after victory. And now they're drunk with success. When I read that, I remember I seen documentaries about World War II. Look at documentaries and look at the first half of 1941. Nazi Germany was at its height. They had they'd went into the Sudetenland, they'd taken over Austria, parts of Czechoslovakia, they invaded Poland, took that over. They conquered France within one month something they didn't do in five years in World War I. Then they took the Netherlands, they took Belgium, they took Norway, and the crowds went wild. They said, we're unstoppable, and boy, they just boasted, goose-stepped all over Berlin, and they think, we're going to take all of Europe, and then that's not enough, we'll take the whole world. And we know, of course, what happened after that. Tide turned in June 1941, they invaded Russia, and they didn't defeat Russia. Next thing you know, they lost North Africa, and then it all came crumbling down April 1945. But they were boasting just like Assyria, and that's a picture of not only America, but the world boasting. 
that God can bring us down. God's the only one that has the right to boast, and he is invincible. Verse 12 next. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, it says, and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. God promised to use Assyria. It's like he used them as a stick. Okay, now I've done the job. I'm going to throw the stick away. I'm going to punish you for punishing them. Remember, they meant it for evil. How would he punish Assyria? They'd be surprised. They're southern neighbors. The Babylonians would come in and conquer them. And then later, Babylonians would attack southern Israel. And it'd be the same thing. It'd be like the same song, second verse. They conquered southern Israel. And then God let the Persians conquer the Babylonians. Oh, and then later, the Greeks conquered the Persians. Ah, and then the Romans conquered them. And then later, the Ottoman Empire and the Byzantine Empire. So that's the history of warfare in that part of the world. And God was behind it all. So God promised not just threatened to punish Assyria and then Babylon. And of course, that's God's way with humanity. God will punish all ungodly, unrepentant sinners one day, including the chief of sinners, Satan. By the way, did God ever offer hope to Assyria? You read this in Isaiah and Nahum, these threats. God did offer hope once. Okay, class, someone tell me, through whom did God offer hope to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria? Jonah. But it was an unusual one. He came in and said, 40 days and Nineveh is going to come crumbling down. God's going to overthrow. It doesn't sound like much hope. But where there's a threat, there's always implied hope because it hadn't happened yet. What happened? Nineveh repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes, even on the horses, and said, we're sorry, we're sorry. So God delayed the judgment. They went back to their sins some years later, and so they did get punished, but there was an offer to them, but it was only temporary. I keep applying this to America. God is still offering hope to America if we turn, repent. Verses 13 and 14, back to Assyria's boast. Same song again, thinking they're the greatest. And again, I can apply that to America. Think of the pomp and boasting of America. You know, God did use us for some good things. We conquered the Nazis, Soviet Union. But then we've gotten worse and worse and worse, and we boast. We're the strongest nation, the richest nation you know, we have apple pie and hot dogs on the 4th of July. And, oh, we got free, land of the free and the home of the brave. Yes, in the land of abortion, homosexuality, drugs, immorality, da-da-da-da-da. We got no right to boast but any more than Assyria. But America is filled with false pride. You remember the old saying, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. Assyria learned that. Babylon, Rome, Greece. When in the world will America learn this? God could make us poorer than the third world countries. Just like that. Notice the rhetorical questions, verses 15 to 19. And the rhetorical question implies the desired answer. Should the axe boast itself against him that chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt? No, these are... 
tools in the hand of the person that's doing it. Assyria thinks it's boasting. God says, no, 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 I'm the one doing this. I'm the one using the axe and the saw. And when I'm finished with you, I'll throw you aside. But God's the one that should boast. By the way, this is echoed in Romans 9, where God says, shall the potter complain to the, uh, shall the clay complain to the potter? The potter is the one that's in control, not us. We can't boast and we can't blame God. But these are interesting rhetorical questions that we can ask skeptics that want to accuse God and contend with him. And I like what it says in the book of Job. Uh, uh, should the fault finder find fault with the Almighty? I like how our Jewish friends would put They say, you're going to blame me? I'm God. And who are you to blame me? What chutzpah? So here is Assyria boasting, and that's the history of mankind boasting. Okay, verses 20 to 23. God has threatened judgment upon northern and southern Israel, but now there's the promise that Israel will not trust its enemies again. Now this is clever. It's like you trusted the Assyrians. They're going to come in and destroy you. You're not going to trust those Assyrians anymore. You're certainly not going to trust the people that defeated them, the Babylonians. And so... The Jews learned you don't trust anybody else. And of course, you know, today, that's what every Jew in Israel says. We can't trust anybody except ourselves. We thank the Americans. They've sided with us. But look what's happening now. A lot of marches against Israel in America. But the Israelis say, we welcome help, but we can only trust ourselves. But the best of them will say, we can only trust in God. In God we trust that would be a good motto. By the way, notice several times here and later, the remnant is mentioned again. You remember what a remnant is? Something a little left over like a carpet remnant you could buy down at the carpet store. Or uh, leftover turkey on Thanksgiving that you make hash over, make hash about the next day. Something that's left over. It's a remnant. So God promises that there will always be this remnant of true believing Israelites that did not go into idolatry and apostasy, and that continued down to the time of Jesus. You read about that in the Christmas story. Zacharias and Elizabeth were godly remnant Jews. Uh, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, John the Baptist, but remnant means something small. In Jesus' day, the true believers were in the small minority, and that applies much later. First, there have always been a remnant of Jewish true believers. For centuries, there have always been a few Christian Jews. Did you know that? Got a book that lists hundreds of them in every century for 2,000 years. Always a small number. But secondly, there's always going to be a small remnant of true Christians. Oh, you get so many, I think about a billion in the world claim to be Christians. Only a small number are true Christians. Those are the true remnant. Remember, Jesus called his people a little flock. The chapter ends before we get to the next great prophecy, verses 24 to 34. God promised to protect southern Israel, called Judah, from Assyria that conquered northern Israel. And God protected them. But then later he would allow Babylon to come in and do what Assyria didn't do. Okay, we turn the page. We just went through that quickly. Remember, we're skipping stones over the pond, so we're going to concentrate for a little bit on this great messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. 
There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And then goes to tell something about him. This is the third of Isaiah's trilogy of prophecies of the Messiah. I were to ask you, what were the other two? Well, there was the virgin birth, chapter 7, verse 14, and the one that has the government that's the Prince of Peace, chapter 9, verse 6. So out of that remnant from southern Israel, remember the small number, eventually a special person will arise from Israel, from Judah, from a certain clan, and from a certain lineage going back to David because God had made a promise to David that one day there'll be a descendant that will be the Messiah, the, the King of the Jews. It's a prophecy of Jesus. And so it says here, uh, a rod from the stem of Jesse. Well, who's Jesse? That was um, David's father. You know that there was um, uh, Ruth and Boaz and they had a little son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse and Jesse had several sons, one of which was David. So when it talks about the stem or the root of Jesse, that's talking about the lineage of David concerning the covenant. God made that there will be a Messiah coming. It says here the root. And um, a branch will grow up out of the roots. Now, when I did this study, I said, well, let me tell you about two trees. One in my front yard and one in my backyard. Now, I just rent the house, so they're not technically my trees. But I remember years ago, the, front, the tree in the front yard got diseased and it began to die. Yes, there are tree diseases. And I remember in December saying, all these leaves are going to fall off and they're not going to grow back in the spring. This is a dying tree. Guess what spring came? Not a single bud on that tree. So the landlady and her husband came out with chainsaws and axes and cut it down. But they couldn't cut it all down. They still left the stump. that's about six inches high. They said, that thing is like petrified wood. We'll just let it rot. It'll, and it took like 10 years and then eventually the grass grew over it. Nothing grew out of that. Then in the backyard, there was another huge tree. It'd take three guys holding arms to reach around this huge tree. And then in a storm, it blew down and didn't go over the house, but it knocked down the fence. And so they had to, they had to hire a crew to cut it down, and there was a stump again. But interesting, different than the other stump, after about a year or two, a little branch grew out of the middle of that. And then another one, and another one. You would have said, it's hopeless. Just like Israel, it's hopeless. And then it grew and some more. And now there's a big bush and a tree is growing up out of that what looked like a dead stump that had been cut down. That's the analogy it uses here. God's going to cut down Israel, bring them down, northern, southern Israel. But there'll be that remnant, this little stem, this, root, this, this branch growing up out of the roots. He brings that up later. And this is the idea mentioned in some of the other prophecies. The branch. Who is this branch? Jesus. He is the branch. The Hebrew word Nazareth from which you get Nazarene. He will be called a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth. And it says Jesse here. And there's the covenant. So it's all fulfilled in Jesus. The son of David. That is the descendant of David that becomes the Messiah. And remember, Jesus asked the Pharisees. They asked him hard questions. He said, well, I've got one for you. Um, who, who's David's son? Because he said, well, the Lord said to my Lord, and that's his son. How can his son be greater than him? And they said, well, we don't know. It's because 
the descendant of David is the Lord Jesus who is God in the flesh. Verse 2 then describes how the Holy Spirit will be upon this special one. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Notice seven things about him. It says the spirit, number one, of the Lord, number two, wisdom, number three, understanding, number four, counsel. This is probably what's indicated in the book of Revelation where it talks about the seven spirits that are before God. And it talks about in the way of the Trinity, God doesn't have seven Holy Spirits. He has one spirit that has several, seven functions. So the spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus. He was anointed by the spirit at his baptism. And he even alludes to these verses in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. So what did the Holy Spirit do with Jesus? Two things. The Holy Spirit authenticated that Jesus was the Messiah. And secondly, he helped him perform miracles. Sometimes Jesus said, if I by the Spirit do this. Other times Jesus said, I do this. They did it together. And it's the same thing with us. The Spirit authenticates that we are his children and he helps us to live and follow him. Very quickly, verse 3. His, that is this root out of this stump of David. His delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall judge. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Notice the poor again. Jesus as the perfect man feared God. Think about that. And he's the big best example for us. If he feared the Lord, so should we. And it says he will judge with fair judgment. Not like these unfair judges that were mentioned earlier. Corrupt politicians. He will use just scales. You've seen these pictures of Lady Justice with her eyes blindfolded holding scales. He said, well, is justice blind? What it's saying is referring to this verse here. God doesn't look upon people and say, well, you know, you're handsome, so I'll let you go. You're ugly, I'll convict you. No, it's got nothing to do with that. The idea of Lady Justice, by the way, that statue is on top of the old Bailey Courthouse in London saying that judges should judge impartially. Just look at the evidence. Not the person whether they're wealthy, poor, handsome, or Lord such and such, or lady such and such, with righteous judgment. But people generally don't. That's why we should pray for judges. But Jesus is absolutely just. He will be the judge at judgment day. And nobody can sway his judgment. He judges absolutely fair. We see that also in verse 2, the judgment day. This, there will be true social justice one day. We hear people saying, no justice, no peace. We want justice. We want satisfaction. It's coming one day when Jesus returns. He's the only one that can execute true justice. And it's coming. The Bible says he comes to judge the earth. Quickly, verse 5. Notice the key word, with righteousness. Great Bible word. Being right with God. God's standard of righteousness, truth, and justice. And then we begin to conclude the chapter, verses 6 and following, another great promise of great peace. This is very interesting, 6 to 9. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. That's unusual. Wolves go after lambs. Leopard lying down with a goat. Calf and a young lion, the fatling together. Little child will lead them, the cow. And all. In other words, 
These animals aren't going to be dangerous anymore. Verse 8, even children playing with deadly snakes. When is this fulfilled? Some say, well, these are types of what's fulfilled spiritually in the kingdom of God. I'm more inclined to think this is promising the great worldwide peace during the future millennium. How do I know? Verse 9. It says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Waters cover all over the sea. There will be a worldwide time of peace on earth, even with the animals. Like This is like Garden of Eden again. Peaceful, no danger. That's not going to happen until Jesus comes and establishes perfect peace, his kingdom on earth. Verse 10. And in that day there shall be the root of Jesse, there he is again, who shall stand as a banner to the people. Banner means like a war flag or uh, when you see these people waving both the Israeli flag and the Palestinian flag, that's their banner to fight under. And so uh, Jesus will be this banner. He's our warlord that brings victory. The last half of verse 10, the Jews in Jesus' day had a convenient way of overlooking this. It says, the Gentiles shall seek him, whom? The Messiah. His resting place shall be glorious. Remember that by the time of Jesus, the Jews had forgotten the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The Gentiles. But in Jesus' day, they said, no, it's just us. Forget those Gentile dogs. They're just idolaters. But God says the Gentiles will one day seek him. And that began to happen in the Great Commission when Jesus sent them out into all the world. Verse 11, here's that remnant again. To recover the remnant of his people from Assyria, Egypt, these other places. That's why going to all the world and preaching the remnant will believe. Lastly, verses 12 to 16, again there will be peace. Set up a banner for the nations, gather them together that have been dispersed, and so on and so forth. There will be peace in Israel at last, God says. When? They had just a few years of peace after the Greeks were routed and before the Romans came in during the time of the Maccabees. About the only time they had peace and they weren't conquered. Didn't last long. Then the Jews have been wandering all around the world saying, we're being persecuted. Now there's war in Israel again. God promises there will be peace one day. When? When Jesus, the Prince of Peace, returns and there'll be a just peace, not just in Israel, but worldwide. Meanwhile, should, we should pray for peace, pray for the second coming, try to stop wars, but realize, just like Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always, there will always be wars, rumors of wars, civil wars, skirmishes, until Jesus comes. And then the last war, Battle of Armageddon, and then Jesus said, no more war. I'm here to judge and to rule. And that's some of the lessons we learn from these chapters. I think next week we're going to combine several more chapters that are uh, pronouncing woe on various other nations. So come back next week. Let's pray. Father, you thundered threatenings and promised blessings through Isaiah to your people. Help us to apply those principles to us, our families, our nation, and our world. In Jesus' name, amen.